Most of you this morning, when you arose, you thought, I'm going to look at my cell phone. No, I won't do that. I'll read Helmet Telica instead. Okay, none of you did that. Helmut Tilica, I may be saying this wrong, Helmut Tilica, a German pastor and theologian, wrote a book called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. I'm not recommending that you read it, but you might like it. But one of the things he says in there is that he will not let seminarians in their first semester of seminary come back to their home church and preach. One, because they're insufferable. Two, because, he says, they learn these theological constructs. They learn Martin Luther's justification by faith. They can mouth the words of it, and therefore they think they understand it. He says, in this way, they are in a state of like a grown-up, except logical puberty. You know what happens in puberty? In puberty, you're kind of like a grown-up, except that you're not in any way. You're physically like a grown-up, but there's a whole lot about you that hasn't caught up to being a grown-up yet. There's maturity to still be developed. There's experience to ascertain. There's wisdom to be gleaned in this growing body, changing body of yours. Paul wants to get you out of theological puberty. He wants you to get out of the ability to merely describe certain things and to be able to take it personally. That's what he's talking about in Romans 5. He's been telling us what justification by faith is and why we need it. As a Cliff Notes version from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, justification is an act of God's grace wherein he pardons all your sins and accepts you as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. God, he says, is going to judge us all, but those who are in Christ will get to say, I'm in Christ. And he'll say, okay, for you, Christ has taken all your punishment away and in fact has clothed you with all the righteousness I require. It's as if everything he did, you did. Justification is. And Paul says, just because you can recite it, who cares? If it just stays out there, who cares? You've got to get it in here so you can live with it. Who knows more about riding a bicycle? A six-year-old or a physicist who's never been on one but can explain all the dynamics of riding a bicycle? I would argue in the most intimate way, a six-year-old who can actually ride a bike, even though they don't know how to explain how it stays upright, can tell you more about riding a bike than someone who can describe it to you. And so Paul is saying, here is what is the case now that you have been justified. Now that we have been justified. He changes his pronouns at the end of chapter 4 into 5. He's been saying they, and he's been saying you, And now he says, we, the people who belong to Jesus, who are learning to trust him, who are offering ourselves to him, this is what we get. This is riding the bike of justification, getting to experience what it means in your life. And Paul would say, you can rejoice 
we're going to focus on two parts. We can rejoice in the hope, even God, because of justification. And you can rejoice even in your aggravating sufferings because of justification. Those are the two big points that we're going to look at today. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and you can rejoice even in your sufferings because of what Christ has done to make you right with him. He's working out the realities of this and urging you to take it personally. So he starts, you can rejoice with God. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. My pages keep turning there. As he starts out, he says, since you've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access into this grace by faith in which we now stand. Paul is saying, here's the personal aspect of this. If you start to actually believe that God has settled the score with you through his son, then one thing you will start to believe is that you have some new hopes that start to really emerge in your life. And one of them is this, the sense of peace that can come when you believe that you and God are not at war anymore. Now, you may in your head is actually telling you something that's a deeply desired thing. You think about in your house if there's any friction from time to time. There are some houses where people argue from time to time. They say, You took my shirt. And the other person goes, oh, no, I'm so sorry. I should never have done that. Here, let me buy you a new one. Do you realize that people have arguments like that? No, they're actually much worse. And sometimes they use bad words. And sometimes they raise their voices because peace is not indigenous to what we're able to accomplish. It's just indigenous to what we want. That's why so many people are alienated from politics. Because it's so... Lacking in peace, it's warring, it's fractured, it's angry, it's accusatory. There doesn't seem to be any harmoniousness, and we crave it. You crave it in your personal life, you crave it at work, you crave it with your friends, you crave it internationally and nationally. And Paul says, through the work of Christ, the primordial peace that's most needed has been affected. God's not mad at you anymore. And so you don't need to be mad at God anymore. He doesn't have the goods on you. This is great. In fact, now you operate in this realm of what he calls this grace. You have access. You have an introduction into this atmospheric favor from God where he is smiling toward you and he is welcoming you. This is all part of hoping and the glory of God, this aspect of it, is that we now have peace with him. Now, as a father here on Father's Day, you know what I consider an epic fail on my part? Is when Andrew will come to me sometimes. I heard him the other day. He said, hey, Dad, can we... Uh... No, never mind. Never mind. And I start to perceive, oh, no. He has asked about something at some point, and I have gruffly answered in such a way that I made it seem like it would be ill-advised to ever speak to me about it again. 
So he started to do it, and then he's like, mm, not worth it. This is the boy who once called me Rage Monster. <laughs> so, Paul wants you to know, you actually have access to God, and he wants to hear from you, and he's favorably disposed towards you. He's orchestrated this whole system, like what Kathy says to him all the time. So the way this ought to work is more like what Kathy and I experienced the other night at a baseball game. We went to our first baseball game of the season. (laughs) And while we were there, one of our friends, a little three-year-old, whom I've never heard say more than about three words in his life, was wearing some cool Spider-Man glasses. And I commented on those glasses, and it was as if... My interest and my listening became or made him a wind-up toy because this boy came alive. He took off his glasses. He proceeded to show me that they were Spider-Man, and he said, and Spider-Man does like this, and he, and sometimes he goes, and he starts to tell me all about what would happen if he were Spider-Man, how he would climb up the fence, and he would get the ball, and he would, get the ball, and then he would go back home to come back to save another day. (laughs) And he just kept talking and talking, and he was lit up, and he was excited, and maybe he was on crack. (laughs) But he was, it was such a delight. And later on, I know how much Kathy loves this little boy, so I walked him back to where she was seated so he could do that to her. (laughs) And talking boy, smiling face. Communicate to him, keep talking, boy. We want to hear from you. We like it when you talk to us. We want you to be in our presence. And at the end of the day, he said, as we were going away, okay, see you later. See you at my birthday. His birthday's in February. Thank you. That's good, that's good. A little forced, but it's good. But you know, that's what's supposed to happen. Is if you know that you're taking the peace of God personally, you're taking this access that he's granted you personally, when you start to be able to become a chatterbox in his presence. When you start to imagine that he's looking at you, not going, I go to bed at nine, what time do you go to bed? He's looking at you. He is favorably disposed towards you. His affection toward you is warm. It has all the debt between you and him has been settled. And he wants you to stand there and become a person before him. To come alive before him. To talk to him. To open. And he wants his face, the welcome of his face to open up that process. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because you now have peace, says Paul, through what Christ has done. You and God are not at war. But you need to act as if it's true. And then he goes on to say, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have peace with God right now, but we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is something coming. There's something splendid coming that we get to be excited about. On the one hand, this hope of the glory of God has to do with being able to be with the one we were made to be with. One of the most cataclysmic parts of the curse of Adam and Eve is that they were banished from the presence of God. The same people in the Bible start to realize, like Moses, when he says, hey, God, if you want me to take these Israelites into the promised land, but you won't go with us, your presence won't be with us, then we don't want to go. That if you have... There's this recognition throughout the scripture that if you have God's presence, if you are in God's presence, you have everything that you crave. Now, we don't always realize that. When Moses asks God, can I please see you? Just like little kids, can I see God? Why can't I see him? We want to see him. We want to know that he's there. And Moses says, can I see you? And he says, well, not without dying. But here's, tell you what, do. Get under this cleft of a rock and I'll pass by. And you get this sort of, as a friend of mine said, the afterglow of my goodness. And I'll pronounce my name. I'll recognize myself to you. I'll make you familiar with me and say that I am the Lord, the Lord. I'm slow to anger, abounding in compassion. I'm faithful to forgive thousands of generations. This is who I am. And I won't let rebellion go unpunished. But there's this sense God's glory is this magnificence that you crave. This goodness that you get little whiffs of from time to time. Really, even know it. It makes you realize that George Bailey, do you know George Bailey? And It's a Wonderful Life was more of a theologian than you might have realized when he's courting a young Donna Reed and they're walking and He's telling her everything that he wants in the world. He's got his life mapped out. He wants to see the world. He wants to conquer it. And then he looks at her and he says, Mary, what is it you want, Mary? What do you want? You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. And she says, well, I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it, see? And it all dissolve. And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the, and the ends of your hair. That's a terrible Jimmy Stewart impression, but, but he recognizes, what do you want, Mary? And it occurs to him as they stand out and he's full of love, smitten with affection, and he sees the moon And it occurs to him, I just want to give you everything. I want to give you the moon. And she goes, okay, I'll take it. What would I do with it? You can eat that same kind of idea. First, you're like, what? Eat the moon? C.S. Lewis talks about that same kind of idea, though. There's something in us that wants to 
the merge with the pleasures that we know. You've experienced this. When your little children are in their pajamas with the feet in them, and you just think they're the scrumptious, most scrumptious thing. You can't get enough of them. You just want to squeeze them to death. You just want to eat them. You want to somehow, not literally, we're not talking about cannibalism here. We're talking about affection. We're talking about deep, hungry desire to, to connect with this pleasure, with this beauty, with this goodness. And that's part of what we're hoping for in the glory of God. Paul says, here's what you get tastes of every day of your life, all the time. The other day when I, I walked after a, a baseball game, huh? In a Chick-fil-A where we've now spent $62,000 in one month. And I walked into the bathroom. And I hear a Muzak version of, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And I find myself moved by Muzak. And we live and I'm overtaken. And because sometimes... The glory of God, which the psalmist says, speaks everywhere. Sometimes we hear it. Sometimes you hear a piece of music or you see a scene in a movie or you have a tender moment with someone who's precious to you or you accomplish something that is so fantastic or you eat something that's so magnificent and you're tasting, you're seeing, you're smelling, you're hearing the glory of God and it's reminding you, as C.S. Lewis would say, that you're made for another place. He says there are times I think we don't think about the world to come or heaven, but there are other times I think that's all we think about because the glory of God comes wafting in through all kinds of our longings and our wishes. And Paul says, because of what Christ's done, you've got that. You have the hope of glory. All your glory days are actually ahead of you. And this thing that you crave down deep in your gut is going to come true. You're going to meet up with real desire. You're going to get to run toward real delight. And it's a comfort if you really believe that you have the hope of God's glory. You have the hope of being in this place with little comfort where His goodness rules the day. When Moses had little snippets, little conferences with God, he would come out from the thing like he had been in a divine tanning booth. His face was radiant. People couldn't look at him because he had been in the presence of God. He didn't even know it, but he was radiating the brilliance of God off of him. And that's supposed to happen with an image bearer. It's supposed to happen. When you bear the image of God, and that's the other part of hoping in the glory of God, is that we lost the glory. The image of God is supposed to radiate God. The image of God is supposed to give you a hint. When you watch a person, when you watch a woman or a man or a child, you're supposed to say, oh, I just learned something about who God is. God was just reflected to me. And sometimes we get that, and most of the time we don't. That's what the fall of Adam was all about. But Paul says, God has engaged a process with you where you are going to be, come like God again. 
You're going to image him right. You're going to radiate him reflectively. You're going to somehow depict God in a way that no one else does. You're going to become fully yourself. Who did a good job. It was like the resurrection. Just kidding. But I saw an umpire. They, they're, they're interesting people. And I have great mercy for them. But I saw an umpire here said, did the most magnificent job of umpiring I've ever seen in my life. Because he was into it. It's like he thought it was his calling to make sure that he umped this game right. And you never doubted what was going on. He was, he would, it would take him a while. The ball would come in. No, no. You're inside. You're inside. We got ball one. We got one ball. No strikes. We got no score. One ball. No strikes. And then you get down again. Ha-ha, you got it on the inside corner. Strike right there on the inside corner. He's talking all of this out loud. He's like processing the situation for the crowd. And so if you ever weren't able to get it on the radio, just wait a second. In the next play, you're going to find out. It was brilliant, though. It was wonderful because you thought, here's a guy who has bought into his work, and he's fully being an umpire. He's not like watching his clock. He's not like wishing he was somewhere else. He is in it. Irenaeus, I think it was, said, the glory of God is a human fully alive. So you have moments where you feel fully alive. That's why we love sports, I think. Because when you play a sport, you forget about yourself. It is awesome to have your body going at full speed and not thinking about yourself for a minute. You can't play sports good if you're thinking about yourself. That's why we love music, playing it, listening to it, singing it in the car like an idiot. Like you're protected by a private viewing booth because you've forgotten about yourself and you feel fully alive. You're fully engaged when you do your work well, when you're in a relationship and you're fully connected. You feel fully alive. You get little tastes of it. Just a little moment at a time. And Paul's saying, this is what's going to be the case all the time. The glory of God is going to be restored. We share in Christ's sufferings now and then one day we will share in his glory. We don't know yet what the glory that's going to be revealed to us is going to be. Humans fully alive. We get to be fully what we are. Right now we're only like three-tenths of ourselves. That's the kind of thing Walker Percy would say. Most of us aren't ourselves. We're only a part of ourselves. And the hope of glory is not only that we'll get what we've always longed for, the goodness of God everywhere around. Fully reflecting Him. And us fully alive for the first time. And it keeps you for forever. This is good news, and it keeps you from being too overly wistful about the glory of the past. See, when we have a sort of eternity amnesia, we get stuck in Bruce Springsteen songs. You know the one. I had a friend who was a great baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speed ball by you, make you look like a fool boy. I saw him the other night at this roadside bar. I was walking in. He was walking out. We went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks. But all he kept talking about was glory days. Oh, they'll pass you by glory days in the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days. 
you're young, you don't know about this. The older you get, and you wake up in the morning, instead of being like, yes, you're like, oh. And you feel a new bit of rheumatoid arthritis developing in your knuckle, and your joints hurt, and you, your kids are growing too fast. You look back, and you remember they were so sweet and little, and now they're not. And it's a joke. I'm talking about other parents wistful about their kids. It's easy to look back, to venerate the past, how great it was. The glory was there. And it makes you sad. It makes you wistful. It makes you turn in on yourself. And what Paul would say is, hey, the glory is to come. Like the best has never already happened. Not for a Christian. No matter how good your youth was and no matter how good your retirement years and the ones in between are, the glory, the best, is always future. And you have it as a certainty because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of the glory of God. And lastly, we don't only just rejoice And the hope of the glory of God, which means we have peace and access, which means we get what we've always longed for. We get to become fully human. And our glory days are not behind us, but ahead of us. But we also, he says, get to rejoice in our sufferings. And it's important that he says that because it lets you know that he's a realist. It lets you know that Christianity isn't a religion that's saying, man, think of this. You've got peace with God, and he really likes you, and it's just going to be so fantastic. And you're like, yeah, but why is my head hurting so bad? And why am I being so misunderstood by the people at work because of my faith? And how come my... Why did I lose my job? He knows that these kind of things happen. We get lost. We don't know what to do. We get confused. We hurt. And he says, well, guess what? You can also... Rejoice, not just in the time when there will be no suffering, but right now in the time when there's plenty of it. Because this is the time. And the Bible, of course, is, is clear on this. It's not just Paul who says we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering is the beginning of this logical chain. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. This proven character produces hope. Well, James says the same irritating thing. Consider it joy. Brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, so you may be mature, complete, not lacking in anything. Peter says that. These trials have come so that your faith, which is worth more than gold, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, honor, and glory to Jesus Christ on the days revealed. All the Bible writers, and the writer of Hebrews, Endure hardship as discipline. No hardship seems pleasant or joyful at the time, but painful. But it produces a harvest of righteousness to those who are trained by it. The Bible always recognizes that God, like Johnny Erickson Tata would say, sometimes allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. God sometimes allows what he hates in order to accomplish what what he loves, which is to say God lets people that he adores go through hard things, go through deprivations, go through anguish and loss and anxiety because he's interested 
not in what they accomplish and not in how smart they become, but how much they come to reflect him. He wants to wipe away all the gunk. He's involved in a remodeling project. Jonathan Haidt has said, H-A-I-D-T, professor at NYU has spoken lots about millennials like no one else, you know, no one else has done that. But he says, not blaming them, he talks about parents that we've, we've made a mistake with kids. The kids are anti-fragile, they're like bone. The anti-fragility theory. Bone, if it doesn't bang into things, it actually gets more brittle. It needs to bump into things to get stronger, and he says that's what needs to happen with kids. They need to bump into things. They need to fail. They need to get in over their heads. They need to grow. This is how God be in rough situations so that they can mature, so that they can grow. This is how God seems to have made us, and this is what Paul seems to say. We can rejoice in our sufferings because we know it's not a sign that God is opposed to us, but a sign that God's deeply interested in us. Johnny Erickson Tata says, uh, it seems to me that God has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. And if you're going to take this teaching personally, you're going to have to come to realize when you hurt. In slight ways or big, when you feel empty, in slight ways or big, when you feel lost, in slight ways or big, that these are the times when God has given you what Anne Lamott calls the gift of desperation, which is how she defines God. The gift of desperation. The gift of being weaned off yourself. The gift of seeing, is it true? Can God be counted on? Will he really resource me? Is his presence really the thing I need? So when the author of Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because the Lord has promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you're like, I think I would just like the bank account, please. What do you mean you'll never leave me? I need a new car. And God says, you need me. If you have me, then you have everything you need. And a Christian who gets weaned off herself, weaned off himself to learn that he can rejoice in these sufferings, that she can confidently depend on these sufferings to produce Endurance and then character and then hope where you can look back. And any of you who've suffered in any way with your faith and have held on, you can look back. And suffering gives you a 2020 hindsight mirror to see the utter reliability of God so that you can count on it going forward. This hope, he says, won't disappoint you. You won't be ashamed. No one who trusts in him ever will be. That's why you can rejoice in your sufferings. And the way this happens, Paul wants to make clear, is that God pours out his love into your hearts through his Holy Spirit. That's how you personalize this hope of glory. That's how it's personalized, this rejoicing in sufferings, is that God actually takes this reality out here and plants himself inside you. And some of you are like, well, I don't think I feel his love like that. Maybe you don't. But maybe you do. Why is it that you're thought of? Like the friend of mine when I said, why is it that you're a Christian? And he said, because I can't not be. 
There's a great number of us who find ourselves, no matter what's happened, we can't give up on the God who won't give up on us. We find ourselves going back again and again because we have this testimonial in our inner lives that says, oh yeah, he can be trusted. He is for you. You should go to him. This is the love of God poured out in your heart. Sometimes it's experientially renewing if you're not neglectful of it. Some of us give no attention to the Holy Spirit, no attention to the cultivation of the life of God in us, and so we're not very aware of it. But if you thought, God can make me know his love more and more deeply. In fact, the Apostle Paul prayed that. He prayed that you might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you might know him better, that you might know the height and width and depth and breadth of the incomprehensible love of God for you. He says, you have sanction to pray those things. I prayed it. I'm an apostle. Pray that you would experience and know the love of God and that you would show the love of God which lives in you. And when you're not so sure on the inside, he says, you can also always look at the outside. Christ for change. It's his love for us in this while we were still sinners. He died. That can never change. When you're doubting if God loves you, look and see, did the cross happen? Did the life of Christ happen? Did the resurrection happen? If it happened, then the Bible says that's proof that he loves you. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You have peace from him. You have glory awaiting you. It's not in the past. You're going to become fully human, and you're going to live where all your desires are being met because you're meeting up with the God of delight. And you can rejoice in your sufferings because God's always up to something in them. And they're a sign of his love, not a proof of it's not being there. And I close with this, Dan Allender tells this great story about being at Westminster Seminary. As a young man, he had had a fast life, smoking them left-handed cigarettes and drinking beers and such. I don't know what he's doing. But he talks about this professor that one morning, he came into his room. And he had been called there. And the seminary professor who was brilliant, sensed that he had been drinking a lot the night before. And he said, I walked in and I was afraid that I was about to get kicked out of seminary. I figured he was going to throw me out. And instead, he looked at me and he wept. I have never in my prior life, including having a gun held to my head, felt such soul terror in all my life. To have a grown man look at me after I've just spent a night drinking at seminary and weeping over me. I was terrified in soul. He then told me how gifted I was at reading people and reality. And he told me I was running from delight. His delight and the delight of God. And he told me that if I wanted to ruin my glory... God would wait, expose, and constantly invite me back. And he said, that's what I needed. An older man who saw me was not afraid, but was captured by the glory God had written into me, and then free to call me to what my heart most deeply desired. 
Ruin or redemption? Do you want ruin, boy? Do you want redemption? I am a slow follower of Jesus that I chose and was chosen for restoration. The apostle wants you to imagine a savior who wept over a city who would not repent because they refused the delight of God that he was only too eager to pour out on. They, they hankered for their own ruin instead of running toward their own redemption. And Paul's saying, look what Christ did. This is what you want. You want fulfillment? You want to be made new? You want to be a different kind of person? This is what you were made for, and he's done all the work. Take it personally. Run toward delight. And all the signs to delight point to our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you'll take that personally. Amen.